Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle, joined today by Linda Gasparello, the co-host and producer of this program. I'm thrilled to welcome to the broadcast today Tom Keane, a distinguished columnist at the Boston Globe. But he is more than that. He grew up in Needham, Massachusetts, graduated from Harvard, and went on to get a law degree from the University of Virginia. His public service work has been wide-ranging, from general counsel at a Washington nonprofit focused on providing accelerated early language learning for disadvantaged children to Boston architecture. He has served as a Boston city councilor and has been a partner in a private equity fund and a founder or officer in various healthcare companies. Tom, clearly you've been on the move. Welcome. My pleasure. It's good to be here. Of all of these jobs, of all of these distinguished careers, all of these enviable occupations, which one have you enjoyed the best? I, I actually think the one I'm now in. Um, I'm, I'm working in a nonprofit that focuses on early childhood education. I've really become persuaded with a lot of the work I've done throughout my life that education is the key to addressing issues of poverty, issues of class, issues of race, and that um, it is also the only way that we can make sure that every one of our children end up growing up to be a productive member of society. I, I absolutely agree with you, but I'd like to say, you to tell us what is the charity you're working with so we can identify it. Uh, the name of the, uh, the outfit is called Apple Tree Institute. It's in Washington, D.C., and we run a number of schools, 13 schools right now, for three- and four-year-old children only. We also developed our own curriculum for those schools with a lot of funding from the U.S. Department of Education, and that curriculum is now being used in a number of other states by schools, both public schools and charter schools, um, through uh, uh, in three other states at this point, and we hope soon to be more. What stands out in your curricula? What about it differs from what might otherwise be offered? So there really are not a lot of curricula for three and four-year-old children. And what we went about to do is to have something that was tiered in the sense that it can respond to children's understanding and so it can individualize education. We also wanted to have a curriculum that allowed us to constantly assess how the children were doing so that we could in fact respond to uh, places where they knew material or places where they did not know material. And the final piece of it is that we also provide sort of embedded within the curriculum um, uh, professional development for our teachers themselves. The curriculum itself is entirely online and it's only for the teachers. The children, it's for the children, it's very much a play-based uh, experience. Um, uh, they, uh, it's book-based experience. If you've ever been to a Montessori school and see how there's centers, you'll see those in our classrooms as well. And you're very glad with the way this is going, or do you feel defeated by the size of the undertaking? Um, I actually am glad by the way it's going. Um, when I first got into it, which was almost 10 years ago at this point, uh, early child education was in many people's minds synonymous with daycare. And that's really all you're doing. You're just 
caring for the kids. It really is not. Um, uh, the early education is actually, I think, eventually will be as routinized as, as kindergarten now is. It used to be, you know, no one went to kindergarten. Um, and it was, and then maybe it went over to half day. And now, of course, it's full day. And we see children there all the time. Pre-K three and pre-K four, which is the terminology that Washington DC uses for three-year-olds and four-year-olds going to pre-kindergarten is I think eventually going to become adopted nationwide. And you see that happening in a number of states and a number of cities. Tom, what happens uh, when the children go into the public school systems after having been through this? Uh, and you know, are they more accelerated than the kids that are in the kindergartens and in some way, is is that could that cause problems for them? Uh, Washington D.C. fully funds early education for three and four year old children. It is unique in the nation in doing that. And by fully funding, I'm talking about you know per child spending of fifteen to twenty thousand dollars per year, just like you spend on first grade, second grade, and so on. So the schools that we operate are early education schools, and they are public schools. They happen to be charter schools in Washington, D.C. About half of all children go to charter schools. But in D.C. now, almost all children are going to early education schools because parents are sending them there. The interesting thing is then what happens, as sort of to follow your question, what happens when they jump to kindergarten? And the answer is yes, they're much better prepared. Um, teachers find that from a social emotional point of view, the kids now know how to learn, which is actually one of the true um, values of early education. You're not, it's not just teaching the ABCs or teaching the kid how to count. It is creating the groundwork for a child to be able to be effective and successful within a classroom. Um, and that's, that's a, big, uh, a big change. Teachers as a consequence find that kids going through early education and particularly in our schools um, are just much better prepared to learn in the kindergarten. They do not have the same issues in terms of acting out in class and things like that. We've sort of dealt with all of those. Uh, the second thing is that notwithstanding the fact that there's, you know, our focus is on social emotional, there's also a big piece of that that has to do with intellectual development. And yeah, the kids do come out and they, they can count to 100 and they know their diphthongs and they can rhyme words and all that. And that does mean that uh, the curriculum in kindergarten needs to change and needs to move upwards. We, we, at a number of our schools, we actually have partnerships where we run an early education program and then uh, partner with a particular school to send the, our kids up to their kindergarten class. And in fact, they've had to change their curriculum um, because the kids now just know a lot more than they used to. Tom, what about the cultural divide between the school and the home? So we work, almost all of our schools, by the way, are serving children who are from low incomes or children from minority groups. So we're, we're really serving a, a very difficult population. And uh, there is a, a, a part, of, part of what we do is we work very closely with the parents. We bring them into the school a lot. We have regular reporting back to the parents about how the child is doing. Uh, we actually can take the child as early in the morning as seven o'clock. Um, so if a parent's going to work, we actually have a pre 
a preschool, a pre, a, a early, a early day program, and then the parent can pick the child up as late as six. So that also means that these parents no longer have the childcare responsibility and can go about their regular jobs. How long is the school day? Well, the school day, it can be as long as seven to six. I mean, a lot of that, you know, the, but the formal school day is really about nine o'clock to three o'clock. And yes, there is nap time. And, you know, the children do not sit in, at desks and there's not a blackboard up front. And mostly they're running around or they're in play groups and there's recess. And it feels, if you walk into the school, it doesn't feel like what we might think of school, you know, sitting in regimented rows, looking at a teacher lecturing us at a blackboard. That's not appropriate for a three and four year old child. And it's not what we do. And as a last question on the children, uh, what happens with language? If a vernacular is spoken in the home and standard English is spoken in the school, doesn't that create a problem? Everyone's an English language learner. So we don't face the problem of say, getting an older child and actually having to teach that child English. Everyone's an English language learner at that age. In fact, that's the beauty of early education, which is that that's the point when you can capture a child's, uh, whose, whose brain is really much more plastic, where the child's really learning to speak, and we're able to help uh, move that process along. Um, Tom, your formal job, of course, is as a columnist at the Boston Globe, one of America's great newspapers. How long have you been doing that? Uh, I have been doing, um, I've been writing, I think, since 2000. And I started off writing for the Boston Herald, which is a competitor newspaper to the Globe. I know, they publish my column over the Herald sometimes. <laughs> I have a certain... and, uh, Yeah, and I moved over to the Globe about 2006. And I write both for the op-ed pages, uh, as well as for the Globe magazine, which comes out every Sunday. And my topics are on everything from business to politics to life to culture, I have a pretty broad range of what I write about. Not everybody in the country or the world can be a columnist, but it's a rather fortunate thing when you are, I think, and I've been writing columns since I was a teenager, uh, because a column isn't, in essence, a newspaper within the newspaper. It's a newspaper of whom, of which you are the editor, the reporter, and uh, every, Every other stage of the newspaper in seven or 800 words is there and it's in your control. And that's rather exciting, I think. I think it's a wonderful thing, Tom, that as a columnist, you've had such a varied career. For instance, as Llewellyn had mentioned, as a Boston city councilor, that gives you insight into Boston politics, into politics even around the country that as a columnist who was just observing politicians and didn't have that experience, you know, you wouldn't have that deep-seated knowledge of what goes on. So what do you think is going on in politics? I see that you're also on the board of the Center for Better Government at the Pioneer Institute. What is happening to government now, in your opinion? Where once it seemed like there was a meeting ground in the middle and we could debate over policy but still shake hands and walk away friends, now it appears that each side views the other as the enemy. And you have, you know, on the, on the left, uh, you have 
uh, people who, I mean, I mean, you see like dating sites, you know, people will say, I will no longer date someone who's a Republican, you know, and vice versa. Um, and, and it's reflected therefore within Congress. And you see literally an evenly divided Senate with only the vice president to make the vote uh, one way or the other. And then you have a house that uh, only has, it's, it's almost evenly divided. And as we're seeing, you know, from a few House members, if they can't could be corralled in, then all of a sudden the Democrats no longer control that. Um, and it, it has made it very difficult to get policy through. Um, the, the question, I, 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 it's interesting as I, people look at it and they say, so, you know, is the issue that maybe we have a problem with Congress, that somehow, you know, we need to fix Congress and people float ideas like, well, maybe, you know, maybe the Senate needs to change. And instead of having two senators per state, you just do the number of state senators proportionate to population, just as the way we do the House. Or do we start changing rules within the body, such as the filibuster rule within the Senate? Um, uh, I think, however, that that kind of misses the point, which is that Congress isn't broken. The people are broken. And there really is a division among people. And, and these divisions cut across class lines, they cut, cut, cut across lines of education, and they, they cut across geography. And, and, and just to, to name a few things, um, if you look at Trump voters versus Biden voters, and from the election polls from 2020, you'll see that rural voters overwhelmingly voted for Donald Trump. City voters voted for Joe Biden. Uh, people who, uh, who were college educated tended to vote for Joe Biden. People who are non-college educated, particularly whites who are non-college educated, went for Trump. If you were younger, you voted for Joe Biden. If you were older, you voted for Donald Trump. And a lot of this says to me that maybe something's going on among us as a nation um, and that we may be, what we may be seeing with this division is maybe a broader trend, which is America's going through if you will, and maybe more quietly, kind of another industrial revolution. And we're going through an industrial revolution where uh, blue collar work doesn't matter as much as it once did. White collar work is what's paid money. And that means that the uneducated or the less well-educated um, don't have the same opportunities as do the people who are highly educated. People who are in cities find that plenty of jobs are available for them. People who live in rural areas find that the circumstances very, very difficult. That's why you see such pushback, say, in West Virginia in terms of coal mining and the like. Um, and I, I think what you see is a group of people, um, and they, they are the people who ultimately identify as Republicans or Donald Trump supporters, who really are starting to feel left out. And because they feel left out, they, they blame immigrants, they blame others, um, they long for a time, you know, as, as the slogan goes, where they can make America great again. And by that, they mean an America that valued them, that they see, think no longer values them anymore. The interesting question is, you know, is this a problem that persists or is it a problem that goes away as, as this sort of new 
revolution in, in our economy moves on forward as young people who are now voting for Biden get older? Do they continue to still be Biden-like voters or do they change their minds as well? Um, and I don't know the answer to that question, but I do think that the deadlock and the gridlock that you see right now is a reflection of America and not just of a broken institution. Tom, do you think that some of what we're seeing in, with this division in the population in the United States, this sharp political division, it has to do with a lack of education about government and how government works and the value of parties working together. Uh, we were in Ireland once, Llewellyn and I were uh, during the height of the Troubles, and uh, where we were staying, the uh, owner of the inn had said he was taking his daughter to Washington, and we said, why? And he said, so that she could see how Congress works. She could see how two different parties could work together. And I thought that that was very interesting, but we don't seem to have that basic important civics education anymore. That knowledge of government, I think, is something that could bring us together. And certainly, you know, we as reporters wouldn't have to talk about democracy so much if we knew that the public understood what that meant and what that meant in our society. Well, and you're right, Linda, what we have is now um, uh, kind of an attitude that uh, has contempt for anyone who's moderate and has a contempt for compromise. Um, and the, the, the idea behind government is that it is supposed to be the machine that kind of processes a whole bunch of values that may be opposed to each other and somehow make something good come out of it. But that means that no one side, either, neither the left nor the right, gets all that it wants. Um, is it still kind of working? It's been really interesting to watch the two big spending bills that have been making their way through Congress. You know, the 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 very cheap—it's <laughs> only one trillion dollar infrastructure bill—and then the much more expensive, perhaps three point five trillion dollar Build Back Better Act, uh, which some people have called the human infrastructure bill because that has it's larded with lots of stuff, whether you know, child care and college, uh, free college, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's quite clear that, um, that to get both of them through, uh, the left uh, and the progressives who very much want a much more expensive Build Back Better Act are gonna in some fashion have to compromise. And there's been a lot of discussion I've been seeing over the last few days that you know maybe we're going to be coming to a point where there is some kind of compromise. Um, what that looks like, I don't know. I you know I still think we're weeks off, uh, but you can see some of that happening, which is a good thing. And maybe if we do get a couple of pieces of legislation out of it, people might start to understand that this is the way the process works. But get, to get back to your original question, yeah, we need the civic education. I mean, it would be great to see more people engaging in kind of, you know, model UNs and the like to actually see and, and to, you know, to take sides in a debate and to see if they can craft something that comes out as, as in the middle and as good. Tom, Linda somewhat obliquely referred to democracy because much of the time we now read and hear, is democracy broken? 
Is democracy broken, Tom? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, uh, and, and, and by the way, it, we are constantly focused, it, and I think the attention of the nation is focused on the federal government on a national level. But I would point to you that an awful lot of what gets done in our lives in terms of what government does is not at the federal level. Right? It gets done at the city and town level, and it gets done at the state level. I, I live in Massachusetts. I would actually argue that Massachusetts is a shining example of how a good democracy, of how a good representative government can operate. Schools are run actually by towns and for the most part seem to be doing a pretty good job. Um, uh, the state is um, a very decidedly democratic state uh, yet uh, the governor is a Republican and they get along famously. Uh, and this is not a broken circumstance at all, but one that's very effective. And I think if you look at a lot of cities and towns around America and in mo most states around America, you'll see that for the most part, they operate okay. Uh, and they deliver the stuff that is most close to people's lives. And that is constituent services, buildings, roads, schools. These are the things that people really care about. Um, it's great to have funding from the federal government. And that's what these two infrastructure bills are about, right? It's just really about money. And the federal government's gonna give it to the states and the states are gonna decide how to spend it. But I think democracy at a lower level functions effectively. For some reason, at the highest level, at the national level, it's where it seems so broken to us. Have we not perhaps, uh descended democracy so low that people are squabbling at the lowest level and obstructing the system. I think, for example, some of the fights we've seen in school boards, should they have been in school boards at all? Isn't this a, an abuse of democracy through over-democracy? Well, the school board thing's been really fascinating. Of course, that battle, for the most part, has been most recently over the vaccination requirements and, and do kids have to wear masks in school and so on. Um, I, I would argue to you, however, that school boards have a long history of incredible fractiousness. I mean, let's go back to the Scopes trial, okay? And, you know, what, should we teach evolution or should we teach that, you know, that, that uh, creationism? Um, we've had these kinds of battles before I think because people feel so profoundly, parents feel so profoundly about letting their child go to a school where the ideas that the child learns are not necessarily what is taught within that household. Um, I'd like to throw in something here about the division of the country. I lived in England at a time when there was a huge division. The Labour Party was the Labour Party. It was socialist. In fact, it's... Uh, its constitution was practically communist because it included a thing called Clause 4, which was nefarious. It said the means of production should be owned by the workers. That was finally eradicated. That was the end of communism, if you will, in the Labour Party. But the, the Conservative Party was very different. And the government went sort of between Conservative and Labour, Conservative and Labour, in a, in a zigzag, in a ping pong. And it was a bit depressing because uh, some industries were being nationalized under 
Labour and then denationalized under the Conservatives. And finally, both sides, I think, decided that nationalization wasn't the solution to everything and that uh, free enterprise also had a big role. Interestingly, all of that is being really examined today with the railways, the railroads in England, which uh, were privatized. And yet there's a big moment throughout the political spectrum, across the political spectrum, if you will, to uh, bring back government control of the railroads because private enterprises made such a mess of them. And it almost had to because you only have one road bed, one rail bed, and uh, you have different trains running on it, not a good basis. And it's something we, we look at in some ways at the electric utilities in this country, where you have one set of lines and deregulating and has turned out to be a lot more difficult and challenging than one might otherwise expect. Um, what do you think of the swing back and forth? We don't actually have that anymore. We have much larger movements of voters. They're not just the swing voters deciding elections, are they? No, not just swing voters at all. Um, you're right. I mean, it, it, you're, the, the, just going back to what happened in England, I mean, I, I thought that what really was fascinating was when Tony Blair became prime minister and he was from Labour and he was the one it had seemed to me that really became that moderate voice that brought sort of a new center back to British politics. And it was not, I think, coincidental that he was basically around at the same time that Bill Clinton was also bringing kind of a new center to the Democratic Party, which had gone very left. Now, now we're seeing a swing where the Democratic Party is now going more left, and it, it'll be interesting to see if there emerges a Democratic leader who somehow can be more centrist and capture the centrist voters and even the right-wing voters or the, you know, the more Republican voters to create a new kind of Democratic Party. Well, we've had it'll also this, be interesting uh, to see if that happens with the Republicans. Well, we, in, in Britain, or between Britain and the United States, we have had these periods of tandem, uh, uh, Thatcher and Reagan, and as you said, Blair and Clinton. Uh, it's not always so. And it's not clear, despite what Donald Trump said, that we're going to have this kind of comity across the Atlantic, should he be the president again, and should Boris Johnson remain the prime minister. It will be interesting to watch. It certainly will. I think I would add one, vote, one note to the, our conversation about is democracy broken and you know worries over this um, and take the historical view you know it wasn't all sweetness and light in america up until you know the 2016 election we've had a lot of battles through many many years we had a civil war uh, there have been dramatic moments in american government where people have clearly split um, and i think that to a degree, what the Civil War was about, which was fundamentally slavery, but also completely different conceptions of life in, of, in the United States, that, that we continue to see echoes of that today. Thank you so much for coming on this broadcast. That's our show for today. Thank you for coming along. Until next week. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available 
as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. We are there.